the National Archives podcast series, 19th Century Merchant Seafarers and Their Records, a user guide to the website More Than a List of Crew, presented by Valerie Burton. Thank you. And the big disappointment is that I don't speak in a Newfoundland accent. I'm sorry. You move before adolescence and you don't get the accent. But I am from Memorial and bring greetings from a kind of outpost of the National Archives, but only in respect of merchant seafaring. This is a little bit of a show-and-tell presentation, because for nearly 20 months now, we've been working on something which I think is worth showing and worth telling about, and it is the More Than a List of Crew website. It is about the people I'm going to call to begin with, working men, and excuse that particular gender reference, working men who got wet. And I'm interested in introducing that description, working men who got wet, to begin with, because I want to talk to family historians, I want to talk to social history researchers, I want to talk to my students, I want to talk to the academics who are currently looking at merchant shipping, and I want to make connections between you. So the Family Historians Project of thinking about who we are and where we come from, which is ultimately what you're about when you're asking questions about your relatives, who we are and where we come from. But what you do as family historians is to grasp at the past through that very personal connection. That is important to me as an academic who's worked on merchant seafarers for more years than I would care to mention here. So I do have some aims in this show and tell today. I want to expand the ways in which people think about merchant seafarers as ancestors. And it strikes me that working men, or if I can now vary that, working people who got wet, is a lovely way of thinking about it. Because merchant seafarers were very much like us, and yet they weren't. And to think of them as working people who got wet is a way of saying they are the same, but there is something which is very different about them. And I think that that's worth hanging on to as I um, use, of course, the wonderful PowerPoint. And I have to remember that we have um, an audience that will be joining us through podcasts at much later times than this. Um, so bear with me when I do uh, make particular reference to things that you can see on the screen. I have a, a sense that many of you already understand the format of this anyway. So let me start introducing merchant seafarers and their records. I'm going to do so through the reference, which is the very homely reference here at the National Archives, BT 99. It's a large class of records, even for the National Archives. It comes in, according to the National Archives website, at 7,875 bundles, nearly 8,000 bundles. But that's only one in 10 
of the contracts of merchant seafarers. What you're looking at, in case you're wondering why you've got the strange, why can't the researcher find agreements in one location across the top, what you're looking at is screen downloads from the website more than a list of crew. And um, at some point, I hope that you will go and log on to us. You can log on by using your web browser on more than a list of crew, or you can go to the website of the Maritime History Archive at Memorial University, where we have a direct button link. So what you're seeing is stills from a website, and what you would be seeing if you were looking at the website would be an animated presentation. So it would make even more sense. The National Archive removed one in every 10 box of um, this class, which is called BT99. One in 10, so where do you go for the rest? Well, to the National Maritime Museum, which removed all years ending in five, another 10% sample. Um, we're still, of course, not explaining where the hole is. And if you come from um, a town, a coastal town, a port, then a different selection of BT99 might well be more readily available to you. Local record officers removed records that they deemed significant to their individual officers. So what we're talking about in the case of BT99 is something which is very much geographically split up, and there's a whole archival story sort of at the backdrop of things today that I'd be very pleased to talk about. Um, you know, you're, you're going to be free to ask questions later. So where are we going? Well, of course, we're going across the Atlantic, the opposite direction to which many of these in their original form actually traveled because what happened in 1971 was that six shipping containers were filled with 70% of this class of records and they came to Memorial University's Maritime History Archive Go to the website and see Welcome to the Maritime History Archive. We had great fun doing that video, and it will show you Newfoundland, and you will be able to see the location, both um, the city of St. John's and the Maritime History Archive. There are two questions that family historians have asked our archivists when they've gone to the London Family History Fair. I'm going to put off one of those questions, but the second one is quite often, how did they get there? That is a long and very interesting story, which again I'm going to put on hold. But let me just show you one thing, which is a kind of a clue to this. At the bottom, it identifies whose words these are. Excerpts of a letter to the Right Honourable Roy Jenkins, MP, Chancellor of the Exchequer, in Britain, of course, from Lord Taylor, the Lord Taylor, officially, Vice-Chancellor, where Memorial University, October the 10th, 1968. This particular connection was actually very, very important to um, the 
resolution of what was to happen to BT 99. I am going to read it for the benefit of those who are listening on podcast, but it is also a very interesting formulation of things. The Memorial University of Newfoundland would very much like to have a selection of those papers, BT 99. This would mean asking the PRO to stay the execution of their plan until next autumn. The execution of their plan was actually the execution of some of um, BT-99. It did actually mean permanent disposal. And then it went on in a way which rather um, amuses us in Newfoundland. Strangely enough, the mercantile history of Newfoundland is a wonderfully rich and interesting one. And the links with the United Kingdom over the period were very close. Uh, Newfoundland was still part of the British Empire until 1949. It joined Canada very late. As you will know, we were Britain's oldest colony. And in the years ahead, that should have read, this was the days of the typewriter, remember? In the years ahead, it would be a tremendous assistance to serious historians to have this material available. Serious historians not family history researchers, they were not on the horizon of that particular period. And that is something that maybe um, you should keep your sights on, particularly those of you who are always a bit frustrated when you discover that the BT-99 you want is actually not at any British repository. So the Lord Taylor had been a Labour MP, in fact, before he became Vice-Chancellor of Memorial University. And this is part of these considerations that we now realize are so important to understanding the hidden life of archives. Okay, so there's an archival story there which is totally fascinating. As I say, strangely enough, the mercantile history of Newfoundland, this was uh, underrating a little bit because Newfoundland's history does depend very much on its mercantile connections. Now, to reduce your disorientation between these three locations uh, and Memorial, the Memorial History Archive website does facilitate your searches. The archivists there have made it possible to pin down, so far as we can, where um, the different records are. But the work that has gone on since the arrival of the BT-99s in Newfoundland, that work has owed itself very much to the support of family historians. So any of you who have made contact with us at Memorial, we thank you. We understand that you ultimately are the people who have kept these records in the public eye. I've been using BT-99 just as a way of putting off what really is now becoming very important. BT-99 came into existence in the 1960s when the Public Record Office had to accommodate what was being disposed of by the Registrar General of Shipping and Seamen. They had sat in the active office of the Registrar General of Shipping and Seamen until that time. So what am I actually talking about? What is BT-99? is constituted by what many of you will know as crew lists. But since these are more properly called agreements, I'm going to be talking today about agreements. Same thing that many, many repositories refer to as crew lists, but there is something very technical that matters 
to me as a researcher of these documents and a researcher with them. Anyone who's interested, it's there on the site. We show you what a crew list actually is, and it's not what I'm going to be talking about today. So crew agreements are what many of you will know as crew lists. But I've still not explained what they are. This is a crew agreement. It's a contract. Simple as that. Contracts. Do contracts actually enthuse us? Contracts? Aren't they rather dull? Merchant seafarers' contracts? Great if you're a maritime historian like me. I can get incredibly excited about these guys who are contracting, and these ones do happen to be all guys. Uh, about 99.9% .9 of merchant seafarers were, but I still insist on remembering that there are women at sea who do sign contracts. So aren't we talking about a rather limited document here, a contract of a merchant seafarer? Maritime historians aren't very numerous. I don't have a huge number of colleagues. I've probably got a greater concentration of maritime historians around me at Memorial than I would ever have anywhere else. Why should you give them attention? I think, challenge me later if you like, I think that these are second only in importance to the census as a source for ancestry research. And I will also, just as a gesture to the historians, add for social history research. Their coverage and content is phenomenal. Phenomenal. What do I mean by that? Well, let me put that in a slightly different way. Our questions about this group of people can go on well after we've had to cease them about other groups because other groups are not so well documented. We can ask questions about merchant seafarers. Remember, working men who got wet, working people who got wet. So what we're talking about is a kind of intersection we need to understand them as merchant seafarers, but they're also workers about which we can discover a phenomenal amount. And I think that that's worth thinking about at whichever point you're entering this particular field, whether you're entering it in search of a relative or whether you are entering it with a view towards finding that history of who we are and where we come from. So this is where most of my points today are going to be directed. You can go away from this presentation today with, I hope, at least one or two observations I make that are useful to you in researching family history. But I hope as well that you'll go away with your horizons slightly broadened in the sense of how you think and perceive of these records and what that tells you about the past. I'm an historian who's very interested in how we research the past, given that the past is actually over and beyond our grasp in many ways, but what brings it real? And it's this particular contract that brings it real to me. And when we, for the past 20 months, have been working on more than a list of crew, we have actually tried to introduce material from maritime historians, from social historians, which does do that business of enlarging. 
So, I've made some big claims here. Let me follow through with the information, the evidence, and the arguments. Now, family historians generally warm on discovering the coverage. These are extensive and comprehensive documents. That was the very thing that once put their survival in doubt. All of that dividing down was because the collection looked like it was too large to keep in one piece. Memorial stepped in and saved 70% from destruction, period. That was what happened. How extensive. 250,000 individuals per annum engaged on merchant vessels in some of the peak years. That is not a small number. What's more? Seafaring was an age-specific occupation. We're talking about young, mostly men, true, some young women as well, but young men. So take the 250,000, realize that seafarers, most of them, are at sea for between six and 10 years of their lives. And what you've got is a window with many, many more of those 250,000 appearing in these records. So we're multiplying each time. That is well worth thinking about. It's also well worth thinking about the bureaucratic effort involved. This was all done in an age without a computer. It was not done before in this particular way, before the 19th century and the kinds of priorities that the 19th century state had in terms of its merchant marine. And it will never be done again. This is a totally unique window in time. And that, too, is worth thinking about. The frustration that many family historians feel once they've heard something of this kind is that there is, at the moment, no name index. What we were just talking about at the front here a moment ago is the project that will result in 1881 being indexed by personal names and 1915 being indexed by personal names. That's on the go at the moment at National Maritime Museum, National Archives, and Memorial University. Okay? It's taking, every day one person is indexing between 250 and 500 names. So this is a big, big undertaking, but eventually there will be a name index, at least to those years. Um, uh, incidentally, the Mormons actually considered that Memorial University's archive was a bit too big for them to be um, doing at the moment, so that gives you a very interesting index on things. There are two generic kinds of contract. You're actually looking at a foreign going there, um, foreign going there. They do change over time. That's one of the earlier contracts. But these are the two generic contracts what you've got on your left is one for the foreign-going trade. What you've got on your right is a home trade. Okay, so too generic. I'll explain the difference between the two very briefly later, but your right-hand one is um, uh, completed for each vessel every six months. Your left-hand one, the um, foreign trade, is completed for each voyage. Now, that's an amazing thing in itself. And I will add 
to that information in a moment. There's more information on these people than you might first think. They volunteered information comparable with the census, their name, their age, their birthplace, and after 1894, their address. And they did so not decennially like the census, but every time they went foreign going or every six months voyaging on a home trade vessel. This makes it a very different kind of a record from a census. Now, they were asked for other things as well. So remember when I made the bold claim that this is, uh, this is very extensive even by the standards of the census. We get into the, the additional information. They were asked past employment details, and more was given because this was a contract with a wage at stake. The capacity in which they were employed, their earnings, which break down to wage rate, which is different from wage paid. You can see what a guy, excuse the reference to, to men, but you know, 99.9%, .9%, what a guy actually went away from a ship with. You can see that. And whether they left an allotment to dependents at home. And of course, they have to make their signature. This is a contract. In fact, they make their signature twice. You can see their time of joining, their time of leaving, and their reasons for leaving the vessel. It's all there in the crew agreement. And then you've got to do something else, because that's facing you on the form. But put this document and its accompanying official logbook on board a ship and send it to sea. The census takes a slice through time. This is a longitudinal record which goes with the vessel and requires administration of the ports in the United Kingdom, at the Mercantile Marine Officers, and by consular officials at ports abroad. This is a record that moves, and that is well worth you considering, because you can follow these people, these crews, these relatives, if they happen to be. Is this too complicated? Some of you will already be familiar, others of you maybe not so with this record. One of the things we tried to do on the website was to make following the document and following the information, and it's now set out in front of you, but uh, I used my own presentation of it to try to impress you what, with what's there. You can see this particular chart, head of the vessel, the owner, the master, the voyage, and the crew are on the site. But what we tried to do to assist people in finding out was in last month's Family Tree magazine described as a superb online tutorial. I took great gratification from that because we had this wonderful opportunity with Canadian funding, the Social Science and Humanities Research Council, to do things with a website developer, which to the best of my knowledge have not been done anywhere else. Some of you might think that this looks familiar. We hoped it would. It is indeed Google software technology, 
but it is being put to a rather different use. On the left-hand side, these are stills. I, I didn't want to try going backwards and forwards between the website and my PowerPoint today, so I'm just depending on the PowerPoint. Um, you've got the Google navigation technology on the left-hand side. You can enlarge. You can really go into the detail through the enlargement function. And I tell you, my undergraduates were mighty relieved because they reminded me that not merely do they very rarely see 19th century handwriting, but any handwriting, full stop, is becoming rarer and rarer. So you've got an enlargement function, and what are these strange, and of course it's very seasonal, isn't it, red and green things which are sitting in front of you. Uh, we dip with a little compass on these ones, but the others are uh, look like fairly standard technology from Google. Red and green buttons. The red is concerned with the layout of the document, and the green with our sample seafarers. This is running across a seafarer, but it's called, the seafarer with the green buttons is called Henry Johnson. You're going to hear just a little bit about Henry Johnson later. He's a guy on the Juno in 1870. We've also got a, a home trade version of this, and our man there is called William Cram. The idea here was realizing how many people are getting their documents in digitized form these days, that this would be the template against which you could compare the digitized document that you had and, of course, the idea is, need I say it, that you click on the buttons and what you get is the description of what is underneath them on the document. So this is uh, one of our green buttons for Henry Johnson. He actually is um, a Canadian, but he's sailing out of Liverpool on a vessel uh, that is mostly recruiting Liverpudlians at this stage. Our other man, Cram, is a Shetlander who is sailing out of South Shields. And I'm going to say a little bit about them today, but I'm not particularly going off into uh, their histories. I will have more to say, which I hope you will then convert over into your particular interests. These are working men who got wet, and there are others on the site. Uh, just another uh, age button to show you how they work. That's on the home trade agreement. On the site, we actually expand on the significance of this label, merchant seafarers. These are people who we've called seafarers tell their tales. This is the third part as we regard it of the site, although people will be joining at different points. We have oral recordings which show you how we used the records of some seafarers to create their tales, their stories, giving key insights into the merchant marine. Um, I'll just flick through this particular index because it does give you an idea of who's up there and the extent of what you can discover from 
the BT99s, the agreements. In a moment, though, I'm going to start feeding in a few more um, documents. We have a steward and a stewardess on the site, and we also have Indian seafarers, Alaska seafarers, featured too. So these, these were incredibly enjoyable for us to research and to compile with actors reading uh, the scripts that we had written. And you can read both the scripts and listen to the oral uh, recordings of their tales. This takes me into a connection which I suspect many of you uh, will be making. Working people who got wet, working men who got wet. The stereotypes of seafarers abound. I've taken a tilt at those whoring drinking seafarers in my um, career. I have a paper that's actually called Whoring Drinking Sailors. But thinking about them as working men who got wet brings them within our compass and away from the stereotypes. Working men who got wet put their feet on land. In this case, Cram had at least his toe in the water. William Cram is on this line, and he's the man who came from the home trade agreement slightly earlier. This is the census of England and Wales for 1911, transcribed, of course. It's not the original manuscript. If it looks a bit different from those censuses that you're used to looking at, this is a vessel enumeration. And anyone who's interested in vessel enumeration, I do have a paper published about vessel enumeration forms, which are very, very interesting. So Cram is still dipping his uh, feet into the water. Seafarers are amphibians. Cram proved to be quite interesting because being a seafarer who was at sea after 1894, he actually could not merely designate one a foreign-going agreement when he went slightly outside home trade waters. He went off to the Baltic and that brought him uh, into a foreign-going agreement. And on that form, there was, after 1895, 1894, sorry, space for two addresses. So this is a 1910 foreign-going agreement, and Cram, who you've just seen on a vessel in 1911, enumerated, in 1910, we know that he was living at a boarding house in South Shields, but maintaining his links back to the Shetland Islands. Not an unusual thing to do. So we're beginning, actually, to realize that working men who got wet move in particular ways, keep contacts onshore in particular ways. It was obviously important for Cram to be known as a man who had kept in touch with a family home and to give that on the census as well as his boarding house. Johnson's life is lived a little bit differently. He returns to Atlantic Canada from Liverpool on a regular basis. Digby is where he was born, and he sailed out of St. John, St. John in New Brunswick. St. John in New Brunswick, Henry Johnson's adopted home, had one of the largest 
deep sea sailing fleets in the 19th century. And of course, it's part of the British Imperial Archive, which is beating 99, but his labor is very often given to British ship owners. These are significant discoveries. Our ancestors moved around. Maybe that doesn't strike you as being a particular discovery, since family history researchers who are interested in this field begin to realize that there is a whole geography of the family. Indeed, some of you might have contemporary families who are spread across the globe precisely because of the movement of seafaring ancestors. Family history used to be rather rooted to the spot, but working men who got wet open up a whole other way of understanding how past people understood their past worlds. And that is when you're doing history. Seafarers don't stay put. They move. The voyage of the Armadale sailing vessel, which explains that very strange detour there. The voyage of the Armadale. We follow on sight a log that was kept by an officer apprentice. You can hear his tale on the site, and you can follow each of his observations by clicking on those buttons. This is his crew. This isn't actually him sitting at the front. I'll show you uh, Alexander Mackay in a moment. But the point about looking at seafarers, the point of looking at a crew agreement, is you begin to see the social group of which they were part. We might focus on the one individual, but shipmates come and go. There's a turnover on board a vessel. And remember that the crew agreement has gone to sea, and so is the official log. So you have six months, a year maybe, of the changeover in a crew. You've got the port that the vessel put into. And you have the ability to do this. 20 years of a working life, give or take a few years where we simply haven't been able to break through to get our clues. But this is Henry Johnson's career from 1866 to 1886. As I say, give or take a few years. This is an amazing thing to be able to do for people who would not, if they had stayed on land, have generated this information. That is the key thing. Working men who got wet are really revealing when we follow them through in this way. Johnson, well, we get to know our people. Incidentally, I have no relatives that worked in merchant seafarers, as far as I know. I have never researched my family history, but I'm a great enthusiast for these people because their tales become so fascinating. 
Johnson lived and lived. We had to revisit him at the end of the website. We had discovered so much about him. I'll tell you in a moment why we identified him. Uh, he proved unexpectedly to have become a ship's master. That always helps, incidentally, because you do get a complete, if you're lucky, you get a complete run. Uh, this, again, is a, um, a record that's uh, kept here. This is Armand Johnson at the bottom here with some of his career. He was only a master. This begins when these guys are mates. Okay, so it's his mates and his master's career. He took a colonial uh, certificate, but the, the records uh, are still here. Before he was 24, Johnson had seen North Atlantic and Caribbean waters. For the next two years, he went deep sea on a Greenock vessel. I think that they pronounce it Greenock now, don't they? They've gone back to referring to it as Greenock, but anyway. More surprisingly, after more than a decade of mid-career voyaging on the North Atlantic and in Baltic waters, fairly short-distance voyages, aged 40, how many of us would do this? Aged 40, he took off for the west coast of South America on a nitrate voyage. Fortunately, he escaped the Guano voyage, but... The year was 1883. That's not a bad career not about to be able to follow it through. Why did he do it? Why did he get wet? Business. Quite simply, what you're looking at is the Troop and Sun office in St. John, New Brunswick. These were ultimately his employers. He worked as mage and then master for the troops. Business one of the most important businesses of the British state in the 19th and 20th, early 20th century. The source of national wealth. That was what trade meant. That was why merchant seafarers were the only civilian group to be subject to this degree of documentation. But it's ship owners like the troops and sons still trying to make a go of it in sail into the late 19th century. They're important to explaining the lives of these working people who got wet. Ship owners didn't ship for pleasure. Johnson's employers were all sailing ship owners struggling by the beginning of the 20th century to make a go of it. But when Johnson, in 1866, had done that voyage with a Greenock ship owner, to the East Indies, this was what his employers had sent him for. This is actually a bill of entry. And remember I said I'd be feeding in a few other documents which would show you where you can go to discover the stories that are going on around the sailings of relatives or people we've identified like Johnson. A bill of entry, it's a published bill. It comes from customs, of course. And this, it gives the details of the vessel at the top, but there's the cargo in 1866. I think they were going for cotton at this point because of the disruption of the Civil War in the Atlantic. But it took him two years to this particular voyage. Myra Ballam's Fox does. 
Don't know whether anyone recognized Myra Ballam straight off, but we had to go to McCulloch's Dictionary of Commerce. We could have uh, gone to various dictionaries. And Myra Ballam's picture on the right there. Does anyone know, incidentally? They are a fruit, and they actually are used both in dyeing and in, well, in tanning, sorry, in tanning and in dyeing. And this obviously is part of the cotton and uh, dye stuff trade that's going in through the port of Greenwich. So it's the Scottish textile industry that's being supplied here. So these things are all adding to our picture of this world. These are voyages in a changing world. Men and women come and go. We see them in the agreements and the logs. Leaving the Juno in 1871, we can see what the profits for Henry Johnson himself were. He took 18 pounds and eight shillings away from a six-month voyage that had taken him from Liverpool to Cardiff to New Orleans and back to Liverpool again. Incidentally, the previous voyage, just one after the um, Eastern Bell, he, for the only time in his career that we know, actually had his wages docked by two pounds because we discovered, we had no notion of what this man was about, but we discovered that not perhaps unusually among seafarers, Henry Johnson had had a bout of the pox and his employers were not about to pay for the costs of his medical treatment on that particular voyage. He made his great escape in 1884. Henry Johnson left the sea, as far as we know, at the age of 42, and the captain that he had been mate to at the end, because he'd stepped down from his master's position, Captain Parker took his vessel on. The vessel was called the Herald, and this is Henry Johnson signing on, interestingly, with a semi-illiterate seafarer up above. This was uh, what originally attracted us to Henry Johnson. But leaving the sea, He'd been sailing on this vessel the voyage before, and this vessel was taken off, sailing vessel. Vessel sailed from Philadelphia, USA, 19th of May, 1885, with, uh, sorry, can't use that, even passing, with uh, cargo of case oil for she was last seen in the Straits of Sunda. Reported her, she disappeared. Henry Johnson's escape. What you're looking at is actually a register certificate, another document you can feed into the stories of seafarers. So, this is the document that is generated to vest ownership in the vessel, the Herald. Henry Johnson ended his life as caretaker at the Royal Bank of Canada in Moncton. Spent 20 years on land, presumably, telling his tales of the sea, including 
the Eastern Bell, Hermira Balans, and the good ship Venus, which was where we discovered the two pound docked from its wages as a result of his venereal disease. Our questions can go on when the limits of researching other groups are reached. This is a wonderful source. It should be celebrated as a family historian's resource. But the historians who are working at the Maritime History Archive in Memorial University and across the world too should be feeding in our insights into literacy, into earnings, into families at home, into capacities, and the changing dynamics of work aboard sail and steam into our knowledge in a collective endeavor where family historians and maritime historians and our students talk to each other about records, their inner lives, and the lives of those who are recorded in them. Thank you very much. This event was recorded on the 8th of December 2011 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.